Aloha from Maui, Hawaii, and welcome to this week's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School class. I appreciate you being here. Remind you, you can listen either by web or telephone and participate either with text messages at the bottom of the web page or verbally and vocally if you're on the telephone, star two will raise your hand and I can selectively unmute just one call at a time. Or, you know, if we ever got really ambitious and I could hook a couple of callers with similar interests up, I could do that too and unmute two calls at a time or three calls at a time. And um, all kinds of things are possible with the new system that we've got. Sort of excited about it. So far, most people have been content to not draw attention to themselves and most questions and comments still come through the web page, but it's your choice. That's what it's all about, having lots of choices and options. So in any event, whether by web feed or telephone, you are indeed with us today live, and that's appreciated. Remember, you can listen to this program by replay, either at my website, theagelesswisdom.com, and the T-H-E is part of the address, so it's the W's dot, theagelesswisdom.com. Click on homepage to go inside and then on web teleconference, and you'll see all of the programs listed. They're almost a full year at this point. And uh, the um, other option, of course, is the podcast, which... If you've got an iPod or other portable MP3 player, is a very cool way to go. The um, iTunes uh, program is available for free without any kind of advertising for both Mac and the PC. It's a great way to organize your music. Plus, it has the built-in podcatcher, which is essentially an automatic download. So you don't have to do a thing once you subscribe and it's always free, you plug in your iPod or your other player, and bang, there it is waiting for you. Now, iPods are down to 50 bucks now, and uh, for that price, uh, they've got some really nice ones, too, that are more than that, but you can get a basic iPod for 50 bucks, and it's really smart. Thousands and thousands of podcasts to choose from in the iTunes Music Store. And, of course, there are other directories all over uh, the Internet, Podcast Pickle and a dozen others. Any of the better podcast directories is going to have this Ageless Wisdom School listed in it. And with a single click, you can subscribe that podcast to the iTunes software once you get it on your computer, on your machine. So uh, whatever is your choice, live or replay, on the web or by telephone. Today's topic is pretty basic, very important and very basic, and that's the roots of fear by any name. Uh, Nervousness, worry, doubt, uh, apprehension, anxiety is a big one. In fact, I think I'll talk in a minute about the difference between fear and anxiety, because Fear is not really a clinical term. It's not a term that psychologists or therapists use. And yet, I think the F word, fear, 
is a great phrase, a great word to use to summarize all these other words uh, for nervousness or anxiety. Again, we've got a lot of words for feeling apprehensive, and probably fear is the most basic. So we'll explore it from the bottom up. I'm going to argue that there are seven root fears or basic fears. Reveal those to you, and then have you consider that any time you feel even the slightest bit of anxiety or nervousness, apprehension, worry, or doubt in your life, you'll be able to ask yourself, just by running through this selection of seven root fears, where is this coming from? What's it really about? And then you'll know what to do with it, how to manage it. Sound like a good idea? This is a program that when I was on KPFK in Los Angeles, I would do three times a year, um, right after fundraising, three times a year. We would go back to basics, and I would do this program on the roots of, of fear. I did it here about eight months ago, last spring sometime, and yet um, I always do these programs off the top of my head, so it's similar material, but even if you remember that show, I think you'll get something new out of it by listening again. And it is fundamental. This is, this is. I mean, life is about a battle between love and fear, bottom line. Love and fear, that's all we got to work with. The positive feelings in our lives, call them emotions or affects or just feelings, moods or attitudes, they're all love-based. Happiness, joy, peace of mind, generosity, kindness, tolerance, patience, compassion, and forgiveness. And all of the feelings that hurt, all of the so-called negative feelings, are fear-based. Okay, and This is new for a lot of folks. They think of the antithesis, or the opposite of love, being hate. Or some will say, well, the opposite of love is actually apathy, <laughs> not caring at all. Well, in semantics, you could make some good arguments for both of those ideas being true, and probably a, a few others. But core metaphysics, when you get right down to it and roll up your sleeves, love and fear is what we're dealing with. That's positive and negative when it comes to understanding your emotional feelings and what they say about you as a unique individual. We must face our fear. There's no way around it. you got to face fear. One of my biggest epiphanies in, in my entire life, the, the, the most profound revelations that ever came to me in any kind of meditative or contemplative state, was the awareness that the best parts of me are hidden where I'm most afraid to look. Now, that's perpetually true, for life is an unfolding. You never really arrive at the destination of fearlessness. At least nobody I've ever met or ever heard about, even the great religious masters and prophets that have walked the earth have known some anxiety and have been upset. One one could easily argue that 
it's a natural condition of dropping into form no matter how highly evolved you may be. You come into a physical body, you're going to inherit an ego, which is that part of your identity that, well, identifies with the separate state that that appears to be the circumstance or situation of life. By all appearances, we are separate. We're in separate bodies in a world of separated forms, and no two physical objects can occupy the same place at the same time. And um, I think uh, as we go through this class today, you're going to find out that that's really at the root of all of our fear and anxiety, this feeling of being alone and separated and alienated. That's a good word for it, too. Alien is a funny word. When I grew up, alien meant people from outer space. And then sometime in the Reagan administration, it started referring to undocumented immigrants as aliens. A rather bizarre step to go from, you know, using a word that refers to people from other planets as aliens, like Martians, to somebody who's from a city just south of San Diego. You know, if you're from San Diego, you're one of us. If you're from Tijuana, you're an alien. That's so bizarre to me, still strange. And I I suppose you can dismiss it as just semantics, but... I think there's a reason that kind of language is used. The demonization of them. Somebody ought to write a book with that title. Maybe me. The demonization of them. You know, to create these artificial lines and artificial uh, separations, again, um, can only be fear-based. It's fear that separates us and divides us. It's love that unites us and and brings us together. So if we're going to be more harmonious and more unitive, interested in working together to improve the world, we're going to have to overcome our fear, which means facing it and looking into the parts of you that you're most afraid to look at to discover the best in you. It's a pretty clever design to hide the best parts of you where you're most afraid to look. In other words, to find the best in you, you have to face your fears. It seems like an an odd path for someone who has spiritual aspirations to walk. You would think you would move toward the light. Isn't that what you always hear? Go to the light. (laughs) Ignore the negative and move move toward the positive. Well, it seems we really can't do that without facing our fear because whatever path we walk is going to be strewn with all kinds of, of frightening things. And if we don't understand them, then we'll carry them with us. We We tend to hold on to what we fear. And that's odd, too, because it always feels like fear is holding on to us, doesn't it? Like you can't shake it. You'd drop it if you could. But in truth, you'll find out today that 
fear is not holding on to you. You're holding on to it. And we'll explain why. So this is our topic for the day today, the seven root fears. Um, Let's get into it. And again, uh, especially those of you who like to take notes, uh, take some good notes so you can ask some great questions. Remember, the questions that I take, you're you're asking uh, a question that's important or significant to you, but you're speaking for a lot of other people who feel the same way and just didn't bother to ask the question, or they're going to listen to the replay or the podcast, and they're not here live, so you represent them too. And if you don't want to leave your name or your city, if if you want to do it anonymously, you can do that too. It's up to you, and I'll let you know when we get to that part of the class. So the seven root fears, here you go. Um, where, where, where we have to begin in revealing the nature of fear is with the understanding that it's almost never about what it seems to be about. We are hardwired to be afraid. It's built into the brain as a survival mechanism. Part of a fear response is to either fight or run away, meaning we presume that all fear is dangerous, and therefore, because it represents some sort of threat to us, we have to fight what we're afraid of or run away. So the basic presumption is that all fear is a fear of something dangerous. That's the built-in overriding program, I guess you'll say, that is hardwired into the brain. Fear of any kind, even just a a general concern, a little bit of nervousness, all the way to severe anxiety and panic attacks, Um, and, and the most paralyzing of fears The assumption is that it's about danger. And many people will argue that, that I'm afraid here or I'm afraid about this or I'm afraid about that because it's dangerous. Well, the truth is most of what frightens us not only is not dangerous but not even imminent. Most of what frightens us never happens. Most of what we're afraid of is not about to happen and could not happen. It's just a paranoid fantasy. All fear is a nightmare. It's a dream. Except, this is my caveat, except for the exceedingly rare instance of real, clear, and present danger. And the truth is, you are not in real danger very much of the time. I think probably the most dangerous thing most people do is drive a car. But I think it's fascinating that that so many Americans can be terrified about terrorism and we're going to get hit again and we're going to have 9-11 all over again and our enemies are going to blow us up 
you realize you're like a hundred times more likely to die in a car accident. If you're really afraid of death, like stop eating meat, don't drink so much, um, drops drop cigarettes, get get <laughs> alcohol and tobacco out of your diet, exercise if you're afraid of dying. There's all kinds of things you can do to minimize the most likely means of your uh, untimely death. Uh, the idea that there's some great danger out there that's out to get you, that's targeting you and coming after you, is a lie. It's a nightmare. It's a paranoid fantasy that is often promoted by advertisers or politicians or others that have some sort of stake in managing you and controlling and influencing you. And they want you to be paralyzed. They want you to be confused. Usually what it's about is supporting the status quo. We don't want change. So you can see this with health care right now. It's like the debate is, is not what kind of change should we have, even though everybody knows the system is corrupt and we need a change. In spite of that, there's this whole body of people, a quarter, a third maybe, of Americans, that have been frightened by those who want no change. And through whether it's tea parties or bringing AK-47s to health care rallies to intimidate people, and I won't even go into the personal attacks on the president, uh, president of the United States, Clearly what it's about is the promotion of fear. And the idea that there's some sort of danger. And for much of, let's, let's be clear about this, for much of our evolution as human beings, the roughly three million years that humans have been on this earth, however we got here, we'll debate that, but... It looks like it's been about three million years, maybe a little more than that. And for most of that time, fear was the result of danger, sometimes clear and present, sometimes lurking in the jungle or the forest, and it could be a predator, some vicious animal. It could be a um, uh, another tribe of people that live down the road a piece, and they want what you have. Maybe you've got water and they don't, and you don't want to share, and so they represent a danger to you. They're going to come and steal your water, or maybe steal your women, or enslave your children, or some such thing. You don't know, right? And so gradually, over this three million years, what has happened is the fear of danger has expanded to include now less and less danger, but more and more things unknown. And this is where we begin. This is a very important concept here at the very beginning. As we talk about the seven root fears, what we have to do is explain that while a couple of million years ago, fear used to be about danger almost exclusively, that the vast majority of our fear today is not about any danger at all. 
but about things that are unknown to you and confusing to you. And as you'll discover in class today, at the center of all the things unknown to you in your life is your identity and your motives. In other words, who am I and why do I care? What's important to me? Simply said, who am I? Right? Because what am I for sort of follows on naturally. My identity and my motives. Those are the biggest unknown quantities in the lives of almost everybody. There are, there are a few people that have managed to minimize the fear and anxiety in their lives by knowing themselves better. And that's my argument today, that you can be part of that by knowing yourself better. Then you can empathize with others and know them better. That order is very important. You don't do it backwards. You don't judge others as a way to know the self. You understand yourself, empathize with others, create understanding from the inside out. And guess what? Not by reducing danger does fear go away, but by reducing confusion and ignorance. That's how fear goes away. This is really important stuff. When you look around at people, for example, who might frighten you, and what could I do to change this whole situation, to change them, to change my perception of them, to minimize or even eliminate the fear? Understand them. Well, how do I understand other people? Know thyself and empathize. Right? Most people do it backwards. It's it, it, it seems less risky to judge other people and then make some sort of presumption about who you are compared to your judgment of who they seem to be. And uh, the Christian Bible, the New Testament, and many other religious and spiritual documents found around the world have much to say about not judging other people. But we have a hard time with that because... We have to judge all the time. Our lives are full of a need to make important judgments, significant judgments. So how could I judge not, right? Well, consider that what that means is when it comes to understanding people, don't judge others as a way of learning about yourself. You may have to judge as you come into an intersection and the traffic light turns orange, whether to stop or whether to continue through the orange light. That requires a judgment. Um, we were talking about judgment not long ago, a few months ago, and, and my wife said, well, uh, Doreen said, I, I, I like to be non-judgmental, but I'm not going to let a known pedophile babysit for the kids, right? So... It's nice to say, don't judge, and I don't want to judge. I don't want to be judgmental of other people, but our lives are filled with judgment. I think what that really means, in Matthew, for example, judge not lest ye be judged, and those who live in glass houses and all of that, is it would be a backward way of understanding yourself to judge others as a way of, assuming something about you, because you were not them, 
They're unique. They're different. They wouldn't exist if they were you. The universe refuses to replicate itself. There are no clones. It's like animal experimentation. You're not going to learn that much because the drug works differently on the mouse or the monkey than it does on the man. So why even bother? You can only learn the most general things from comparing apples and oranges, you see. And you are unique. Whether you're an apple or an orange, you're <laughs> you're one of a kind, and very little is going to be learned by judging about you, by judging other people. So, having said that, then we need a we we need a we need a means or a mechanism of understanding ourselves better, and we'll talk about that as we get into one, two, three, four, five, six, seven these seven root fears. But at the top. And again, for those of you that are note takers, make sure you have this clearly written down. Fear is less about danger than things unknown. All right. There was a time when we were in great danger and the laws of the jungle and survival prevailed and fight or flight got us through. We are the descendants of ancestors that were really good and experiencing fear and either fighting or running and that's who we are so we've inherited that we're really good at that but there's just not that much danger except for driving on the freeway right or again the things that you do to yourself with the diet and the habit all right so the anxiety stress the nervousness the worry the doubt the apprehension collectively the fear that we experience in this day and age is vastly more about things unknown and confusing, misunderstood, than any real clear and present danger. And these are the first two of the seven root fears in your life. Number one, real clear and present danger and number two, imaginary danger. So there's the first two. All right. Number one, real, clear, and present danger. Um, I don't know if you've ever suffered being robbed on the street. This happened to me, um, gosh, some 30-plus years ago, as I think about it now. It uh, doesn't really matter when. It was a terrifying experience. Uh, to be robbed on the street, to have somebody put a gun in your back and tell you nervously to give them your wallet and your car keys, which I was happy to do, right, when your life is at stake. It's like, yeah, dude, take the car, take everything. Uh, I was afraid. I was frightened. Um, I had adrenaline in my body for probably 12 <laughs> to 15 hours after that, right? Uh, that was because I was facing real, clear, and present danger. You come around the corner, and there's a rabid dog, a junkyard dog, snarling, teeth exposed, drooling, ears pinned back, looking right at you. I'd say that's real danger, right? Certainly a high potential 
for real danger. That's number one. But that does not account for most of the fear in our lives or the anxiety or the nervousness. Not half, not a not a third, not a quarter, not even 5%. I dare say less than 1% of the fear and anxiety in your life and in the lives of your neighbors and your friends and your enemies, for that matter, has anything to do with danger. In fact, it's to be found in the other six. Things unknown. So, In describing the first two fears, I'm really explaining also that the only one of the seven that is about danger is number one. Numbers two through seven, the other six, numbers two through seven are all about things unknown and confusing. This is really powerful because it means that If you're facing danger, real clear and present danger, rare though it may be, the antidote for that danger is some sort of safety. You need to allow yourself, and you will, you'll go automatically into fight or flight, and you'll get real strong, your heart will start to beat, you'll get these chemicals, adrenaline and other chemicals dumped into your bloodstream and your muscles will get stronger, and your respiration will increase. Um, uh, you've heard of you know these stories of little old ladies lifting cars off of their grandchildren, you know, in a fit of adrenaline, and and extraordinary things happen to people when they face a real danger, or for that matter, even the perception of danger. They believe that it's danger, and so. I would say uh, that the antidote to real danger, though I'm making a case for it being very, very rare indeed, is built in. It's automatic. It's autonomic. It's a hardwired fear response called fight or flight. It's actually fight, flight, freeze, or faint. Because there is the deer in the headlights and the playing possum that humans can do, where you just pass out. Fight, flight, freeze, and faint. All F words. Isn't that funny? Fear. Fear, fear, fight, flight, freeze, faint. Uh, It's funny language sometimes. So don't worry about the real danger, because you'll, in most cases, be empowered to deal with it automatically again. Say to yourself, I am a survivor of people who were really good at responding to fear. It's just almost never the case. Number two is the much more common fear of what appears to be dangerous. All right. So number one is real, clear, and present danger. Number two is danger imagined. I can imagine being in danger. A good example of the second kind of fear in our list of seven here, would be the fear of flying. Now, statistically, I think pretty much everybody knows that you're safer in an airplane, whether it's a big jumbo jet or a a little two-seat Cessna 
or an ultralight, it doesn't much matter. You're really safer in the airplane, statistically, than you were driving to the airport or even walking through the terminal or uh, having a fat burger with a malted and french fries. You're, you're, safer. <laughs> you're safer on the airplane. Of course, you look out the window and you see that you're 35,000 feet in the air and it doesn't feel all that safe. Or you watch the film clips of that airplane crashing and doing the fiery cartwheel uh, in Chicago. I don't think I'll ever get that image out of my mind. And you're in an airplane, it's hard not to think of that, right? Just like people who are claustrophobic, they start to fixate on, all right, I'm in this little tube, and gosh, it seems to be a very small tube, and it's growing smaller all the time, and now I have to buckle up, and this sure is a tiny little seat, and I don't have much leg room, and <sighs> you know, that's why they put those air jets above you. You don't really need those things. They could they could put those any place in the airplane. They put them right over your head to help with the anxiety that many people have of being in an enclosed place. So you've got fear of heights going on with fear of flying. You have claustrophobia as another potential element of fear of flying. You have what seems to be the absence of any kind of control which is also a big issue. We'll talk about control more in a minute when it comes to a fear of flying or a fear of anything else, for that matter. Control is a big issue. But, in fact, you're safer in the airplane than uh, you were driving to work any day of the week or walking down the sidewalk of any major city. You're in greater danger than in the airplane. So number two is, all right, Michael, I understand that statistically, but I still feel I still feel the fear when I get on the airplane. Okay. So those are the first two and by the way, I'm doing these in order from the least significant fears and the least important fears to the biggest. And you may have times in your life where the order is different, but I think you'll see when I finish all seven here in a few minutes, why I put them in the order that I have. All right. So there's the first two. And uh, fear of real danger and fear of imaginary danger. And remember, only number one is going to be about danger. Even though we're hardwired to think of all danger, I'm sorry, to think of all fear as being dangerous, only one of the seven here represents danger number two through number seven the other six are all things unknown and confusing and imaginary and made up and invented uh, a dream or a nightmare starting with number two which is i can imagine danger but i don't really know i think i'm in danger i'm in this airplane looks dangerous seems dangerous even though statistically, you know, you're much safer there than just about anything else you do, right? Buckle up. Number three. Number three is an issue of time. And the 
amount of fear and anxiety and stress that is time-related certainly is significant, but still down here toward the the beginning of uh, the less common elements of fear. Um, so-called hurry-up sickness is a major stressor or fear factor in the lives of many people, and it seems to be getting worse. Um, before I left Los Angeles, you know, I lived in L.A. for 35 years, and that's 35 years of driving on Los Angeles freeways and dealing with the energy or the frenzy of L.A. And it may be rather kicked back compared to New York, for example. But for me, coming from a small town in the Midwest, it was hectic enough and frenzied, chaotic enough. And I remember thinking a few years before I left Los Angeles how odd it was that people were driving faster and faster and faster on the freeways, even though they were more and more crowded, and that this was true on the way to work as well as on the way home. And I thought, well, I can sort of understand people rushing to get home from work. But since most people hate their jobs, why are they rushing to get to work, right? Well, there's a number of reasons for that. Maybe they're late. Um, maybe they don't want to go to work, so they wait till the last minute and then hurry on the freeway. Uh, I'll leave it to you if that's a problem for you to figure out why you why you're in a hurry to get to work as much as you are in a hurry to get home from work. I just think it's a matter of running away, always running. Whether you're running towards something or running away from it, it's just part of the frenzy of living a high-anxiety lifestyle. And so to hurry up, to feel like there's not enough time uh, is got to be the third fear. Again, not, not that it's dangerous, but it's another unknown. How much time do I have? Well, I don't know. Well, when will you have enough time? Well, I'm not sure. Well, how much time will that take? Well, it depends. Well, how quickly can you drive from here to your workplace? Well, it could be 20 minutes. It might be an hour. It depends on the traffic. Well, how would you know? Well, I don't know. And yet every radio station has traffic. I'd like to know. You see, it's the not knowing. It's the confusion. It's feeling out of control that you can't manage your time. And yet most people don't set goals. Most people don't schedule their time. Most people don't do things to allow themselves to have extra time. There's this big fear of self-importance and low self-esteem that says, I need to prove that my life is important. I can't get there too early. I'd be wasting time. I mean, even the concept of how do you waste time? What does that mean? Well, I'm not performing at my peak. Well, so what? People who try to perform at their peak burn out and end up doing quite poorly. So, you know, what does it take? 
little sports psychology could be applied here. You know, peak performance doesn't come from being in a hurry and trying harder and harder and harder. One of the things we've learned from 30 years of sports psychology now is the harder you try, the worse you do. The faster and more frenzied and more chaotic your life, uh, this is, we call this the myth of multitasking. You're not doing better. You might feel like you're getting a lot accomplished, but you're not. Okay. So hurry up sickness and feeling like you don't have any control over time is really the third fear. So number one, real danger, clear and present. Number two, imaginary danger. I think there's danger. I'm not sure. And number three is the fear of not having enough time. And when will you have enough time? And how do I get enough time? And who has enough time? I'm running out of time. Hurry up. Hurry up. Why? Hurry up to make a lot of money, to buy a lot of stuff so I can enjoy life. But you don't have the time. So, you know, what are you going to do? You would think people would want better time management skills, but they really don't. By and large, people are addicted to adrenaline. They're addicted to the sense of self-importance that comes from always being in a hurry and convincing yourself that the office won't run without you. The truth of the matter is a week after you're dead, everything will be back to normal and your work will go on without you and others will pick up the slack and you'll be missed, but we're not that essential. It's a game that we play because we don't understand ourselves. If you knew yourself, you'd know that you have all the time in the world. That time is basically an illusion. There is no past. That's just a memory. There is no future. It's just an imaginary timeline. There's only now. That's all you've got is this moment. And we waste it being in a hurry to get to the next moment that doesn't exist. It's like that old Creedence Clearwater Revival song, Someday Never Comes. Right? You wake up tomorrow and say, well, is it tomorrow? No, it's today. It's still today. Tomorrow never comes. Someday never arrives. Your point of power is now. It's the only thing that's real. This breath, inhaling. This breath, exhaling. How do you feel now? What are you doing now? It's the only thing that matters. It's the only thing that's real. So this whole third category about the fear of not having enough time or the fear and anxiety and nervousness of of being in a hurry, always rushing, never quite getting it together, getting close, but never quite pulling it together. That would have to be the third of the seven fears and another fear of the unknown. The fourth is, for many people, the biggest one, that they think of. The last three, I don't think that we're going to cover today, I don't think most people even consider. So 
I think this fourth fear is, for most people, the one they'd put their finger on if they spent a lot of time thinking about it. And that's the fear of being out of control. C-O-N-T-R-O-L, control. Boy, how much of your life is about trying to find control? To see it clearly, uh, to hear it accurately, to get a grip, whether you're a visual, an auditory, or a kinesthetic, uh, control. That's what we want. And um, the idea that there are some things we cannot control is frightening. And when you don't know what you can control and what you cannot control, it's even more frightening. So again, here, number four, the fear of being out of control is another unknown. It's not that you know you're out of control or that you know the limits of your control. You're looking for control. You don't have total control, and so you don't know exactly where the limits are. Or who is in control if you're not in control? Right? Do you think the President of the United States is in control of something? Is the Congress, this great body of people, in control? Are you in control? Of course not. I could do a whole program on any one of these. In control in particular, we could do a series on control. Let me just simply say that to look at control... You've really got to break events down into the stimulus, the perception, and the response. In biology class in high school, I'm sure you studied stimulus response and how the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom have the stimulus response, right? So you turn on the light in a dark room and all the plants, given a little bit of time, will turn and orient themselves toward the light. The light is the stimulus. Turning toward the light is the response. Okay, Or maybe you remember the classic uh, being tested for stimulus response reaction where the doctor will have you cross your knees and will you know, use that little pink hammer on the knee to uh, test your reflexes to test your response. And that signal goes to the spine and then bounces right back to the knee, causing the leg to swing out and react before the signal gets to the brain. So the stimulus hits the knee and the knee reacts, and then you experience the process in the brain. It's sort of weird. It takes about three-quarters of a second for the stimulus to get from the knee to the brain. So part of inheriting from our ancestors, fight or flight, is this sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, the fact that the the spine, in a sense, makes a uh, uh, an immediate decision to shoot first and ask questions later. Let's jump, let, let's jump out of the way, right? Let's react to the stimulus. And then we'll reason about it and think about it and feel it out uh, later on. Well, that's fine for testing reflexes, but not a good place to make 
important management decisions about your life. I know people that decided to get married based on the fact that seemed like a good idea at the time somebody asked them and so they said yes and they never really thought about it they just did it and walking down their aisle they knew they were making a horrible mistake but it was too late all the invitations had gone out and and all the arrangements had been made and now it's the wedding day and here we are and it's too late now and so they walk right into what turns out to be a disaster because they did not consciously make a decision. That perception element in the middle was missing and is missing for most people, especially when they're stressed and anxious and suffering from fear. So to be conscious that you have that middle point between a stimulus and a response, between a stimulus and a reaction, to perceive. That's where you have control. In other words, you can't control the stimulus, but by developing your perception, you can control both perception and response. That's where control is found. Most of what happens to you, most of the stimulus in your life, you cannot control. A sailor, I say this a lot, but it's important. A sailor says, I cannot control the wind, so I adjust and trim my sails. You cannot control the weather, but you can look out the window and dress for it. Take a sweater or an umbrella if it looks like it may rain today. You see, you can control your perception and response. You just can't control what's being done to you. Sometimes you could influence or persuade other people. You could cajole or buy off or seduce, you know, behavior from another person. But most of the time, whether it's interpersonal or just random events in your life, you're out of control. You are a victim. Life will be done to you. You could duck or dodge or, like the matadors, step out of the way at the last minute. But basically what happens to you is going to happen to you. You do not have very much control in that area. Control is found in how you look at it and how you choose to respond, but it requires conscious awareness. All right. So that's number four. Where are we now? The first four. Root fears in your life. Number one, real danger. Number two, imaginary danger. I think there may be danger here. I don't know. Number three, I don't know if I have enough time. I don't know who has enough time. And number four, I don't know if I'm in control. I don't know who's in control. One fear of these four, one about real danger and three other fears about things I don't know or don't understand. These are the first four. Now, five, six, and seven all go together. And these are the the biggest of the seven, as I said before, and I think the least likely to even occur to us. Least likely to occur to us, and yet the most significant fears in our lives. 
We've already talked about danger, real danger and imagined danger. We've talked about feeling uh, out of control around time and feeling out of control and things in general. I think time does get its own category. You could lump it in with control, couldn't you? But then, five, six, and seven, here's the big one. Number five, I don't know what to do. Well, what do you want me to do about it? I don't know. Well, what do you think I should do? Well, I don't know. What I don't know what to do, what I'm supposed to do. I wish I knew what to do. Most people define problems based on, I don't know what to do. If only I knew what to do. I wouldn't have a problem if I knew what to do. Number six, I don't know what I want. Number six is the reason that number five exists. <laughs> Most of the time when we don't know what to do and we have a problem, what do you think I should do? Well, what do you want me to do about it? I don't know what to do. It's because we don't know what we want. To do about what? What is your goal? What is your desired result? What do you want? What's your solution? Well, I don't know. Well, then say you don't know what you want. Why are you saying you don't know what to do if you don't even know what to do about what? It's like here you're at AAA and you've got every map there is. All the maps in the world are <laughs> all these triptychs. You're at AAA and you go, I don't know what to do. Well, how could you know what to do if you don't know where you want to end up? You see, number five is a function of number six. You've got to know your solution, your goal, your desired outcome. You've got to know what you want before you could possibly know what to do about it. Seems simple enough, but when did anybody ever sit you down and explain that to you? What parent? What teacher, what course of study do we go to for such basic yet essential information? If somebody had sat me down as a little boy and said, Michael, whenever you don't know what to do, ask yourself, do I know what I want? Because usually the reason you don't know what to do is because you don't know the goal or the solution or the outcome. How old would you have to be to understand that? Seven or eight? You think a five-year-old would understand that if it was demonstrated? And I think so, if it was demonstrated in a, in a really simple way. We could be teaching children in the kindergarten, first grade, second grade, critical thinking skills, very simple, basic skills that would eliminate huge percentages of the anxiety, stress, and fear in their lives. Anytime you're confused, Junior, and don't know what to do, ask yourself, do I know what I want? You see? Because the majority of time that you don't know what action to take, you don't know what to do about something, you don't know what to move toward, it's because you don't have anything to move toward. So, avoid. you know, what happens is avoiding what you do not want becomes a substitute for a goal in the minds of most people. 
what do you want? They say, I don't know, but I'm busy avoiding what I don't want. And my life is full of avoiding disaster and negative outcomes. And my life is busy just avoiding what I don't want. I haven't got time to decide what I do want. Well, it's an imperative. You've got to know what you want before you can move toward it. And then number seven is the biggest fear of all. And that's, who am I? You've got fingerprint evidence and DNA proof of your uniqueness and your individuality, but nobody ever gave you a handbook that says, here's your make and your model, this is your unique serial number, and here's a manual, uh, a quick start study guide on how to do your life. And you'll need this because... You're unique, and nobody else is exactly like you, right? So these last three go together. Five, six, and seven is I don't know what to do. Five, because six, I don't know what I want, because seven, I don't know who's the person doing the asking. Let's reverse it. Seven, six, five. Because I don't know who I am, how could I know what I want, let alone five, what I should do about it? These are the biggest of the seven root fears. So let's go over them again quickly. Number one, the fear of danger. Number two, the fear of imaginary danger. I don't know. I think it might be dangerous, but I'm not sure. Number three, the fear of not having enough time. How can I get it, get some control over time? Number four, control in all areas of your life. Again, we could merge three and four, but I think hurry up and time and rush, rush gets its own category. But control in other areas of my life. How do I control you? How do I manage this circumstance? Right? Control, isn't that what people want? And feeling out of control definitely is a source of stress, anxiety, and fear in our lives. <laughs> but five, six, and seven, I don't know what to do because I don't know what I want because I don't know who I am. Those are the big ones. So to work it backwards, you've got to know who you are in order to know what you want, in order to know what to do about it. And then you can begin to get a handle on how do I get control. And I've already hinted at you control your perception and response rather than the stimulus. That's really, really big. How do I manage time? You understand you have all the time there is. Time is not um, like a pile of some commodity a pile of money or a pile of apples that you're using up. You can't waste time. You can't use it up. It is not a commodity. It is only an instant that perpetually unfolds. Eternity is not this giant basket of time that you could never get your arms around. Eternity is a pinpoint the tiniest moment 
that continues to exist eternally. Do something about the past. I can't. Do something about the future. I can't. But if I could change the past, like change the way I look at it, learn a lesson, or plan the future, I'd have to do it in the here and now. Anything real that has to do with the past or the future is going to happen in the present moment. So get real about it. The present is all you've got. And all of this is going to help you with one and two, distinguishing the difference between real fear, real danger, clear and present danger, imminent danger now, and the much more common imaginary danger. One danger, there's all these seven fears, these root fears, seven of them. One about danger, six about things unknown. And the one about danger is the least significant of all. So, that's the outline. Let's go to your questions or your comments. Reminding you again, if you're on the telephone, press star 2 to raise your hand. Nice to see the callers here today. Got a lot of callers. No one's raising their hand just yet. You know, you guys are so bashful, I can't believe it. I don't yell at anybody. <laughs> Let's go to the the website and see who's logged in here with a text message or a, a question or a comment on this side. In Pittsburgh, uh, John Bowles, actually, um, he lives in Pittsburgh, but he he's uh, checking in from Costa Mesa today. John Bowles is with us. Hiya, John. He says, aloha, Michael. Much aloha to Doreen. This topic is a favorite of mine, and hello to all of my Ageless Wisdom Mystery School classmates, including Don from Apple Valley. I'm on the road traveling from Southern California's beautiful high desert to Costa Mesa and will definitely download later today and we'll call live soon. I had a conversation with John. He's going to maybe break the ice and be a caller next week or the week after. In Albuquerque, Donna's with us again this week. Hello, Donna. She says, Michael, this topic is really appropriate for me, especially today. Um... I had three women stalk me in the parking lot of Smith's Grocery Store about an hour ago, and I'm very upset. She says, I realize fear amounts to false evidence appearing real, and this was very real. And I'm scared from my head down. Where is this coming from? What am I doing to create such an experience? She says, I called the police, got a very negative response. I guess there are just so many incidents out there. I'm trying to surround these women in love, but I cannot any suggestions. Um, yeah, first of all, I did, I did not mention that acronym of FEAR as representing F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real, but it is, it is a good one. I do like it, and I do use it in these kinds of presentations often. It's a way of saying that fear is a dream, fear is a nightmare, that what you're afraid of here, Donna, the good example, what you're afraid of here you can't name, you don't know. 
um, there's maybe an imaginary fear that these people want something from you. I don't know. Uh, I believe I'm reading this correctly, that three women followed you through the parking lot. I don't even know you well enough to say, well, maybe, I mean, I might insult you if I said maybe they weren't really following you. Maybe you were just walking ahead of them. I don't know if you know them. Um, maybe you do. I, I don't have any of that information. So it's hard for me to give you much feedback except notice that your fear, whatever word you use, stress, anxiety, nervousness, apprehension, is a function of what you don't know. And the more you know, the less fear there would be. Okay, If you did know these women, that would help. If you knew why they were stalking you or why they wanted to talk to you or whether indeed they did want to talk to you, uh, maybe they were collecting money for a charity. I, I, I don't have enough information, but apparently neither do you. And that's the source of the fear. And that's the primary lesson that I have for us today, is that knowledge is the antidote to fear. That's a quotation from uh, one of my favorite mentors and teachers, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Knowledge is the antidote to fear. He doesn't say carry a gun or a stun gun or a stick, um, you know, or always have a vicious dog with you or never go to the Smith's grocery store alone. Or He said knowledge is the antidote to fear, meaning fear is a function of things unknown. Knowledge is your friend. I wish I could give you a better response, Donna, but I just don't have more information. But it's possible that they weren't stalking you at all. Maybe they were. I, I don't know. I'd love to know the ending to that. Um, so maybe you were in danger. Maybe it was number one. But clearly it's number two. I don't know if the danger is real or imagined. Might have a little a little element of number three time. Certainly had a piece of number four. You didn't feel you had control. So you. But how much would that matter? I wonder. As you develop yourself and know yourself better, as you understand who you are, what you want from life, and what you need to do to get it. I think victimization plays less and less and less of a role. On the other hand, you know, a friend told me a couple of weeks ago that uh, he was in a um, one of these, um, I guess they're like poker parlors in Southern California. There's some kind of gambling that is legal in Southern California, and I'm not sure the distinction because... They don't have casinos like they do in Vegas or or back east in Southern California. Well, they do, but there's a lot of games they don't allow. Anyway, this client of mine told me that he was in a casino, and he noticed that while he was doing pretty well at this game he was playing and making some money, he was being checked out by a couple of thugs and then later went out in the parking lot and saw them sitting in a car in the parking lot and so they knew he had money. That, 
I don't know, maybe that's the same situation you experienced, the same feelings that you experienced. Uh, but even then, I said, you have to consider that you may have invented all that. You might be imagining it. Is there wisdom in holding open the possibility that they're out to mug you? Sure. But again, the fear is supported by what you don't know more than the danger. That's the lesson I want to get over today. So the antidote would be to know and to understand, starting with know thyself and then know the neighborhood, know the grocery store, know these three women. What in the world? I'd love to hear the outcome on that, Donna. Philip James in Winnetka says, I wasn't in a hurry to get home from work. Well, Philip, that would make you the exception to the rule. And I'm glad. Maybe you work from home. I don't know. I hope you're so lucky. And uh, I'd be proud of that. Not in a hurry to get home, not in a hurry ever, right? Oh, sometimes maybe you need to be in a hurry. But, again, fight this illusion that time is moving someplace or that you're running out of time or wasting time or I don't have enough time. These are nonsensical terms. And they just lead to more anxiety and more fear. Disease. You know, you die young. You get to some stage in your life. What's that they say? What is that wisdom about wheeling the guy out of triple bypass surgery? And he he's never thinking as he reorders his priorities and his values, gee, I should have spent more time at the office. If only I had worked a little harder. Is that what it takes? An encounter with death? You know, some life-threatening disease for us to take another look at what's important to us? Right? And then if giving up a little bit of extra income or a little bit of of status or prestige at work allows you to spend more time with your family, well, recheck those priorities. Maybe that's really what you'd rather be doing. In the San Gabriel Valley of Southern California, Chris says, just drove by the Los Feliz exit in Glendale, and I felt good inside because it reminded me of the six-week workshop you had at the Red Cross just before you left for Hawaii, Hawaii. And those were a great six weeks, good people, good vibes, good times. Now is the time to understand more so that we may fear less. He's quoting Marie Curie. Now is the time to understand more so we may fear less. I am not familiar with that, but it sure fits, Chris. That's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, and I do remember that last uh, six-week workshop at the Red Cross. I have a tape of that, by the way. If you, uh, I have that on MP3s, and um, I always meant to post that and sell that, but I never really haven't gotten around to doing it. But I do have all that on MP3, 18 hours, really good stuff. I will post that one of these days. And Chris, if you were there and paid for the class, I'll be happy to make them available to you. Just let me know. In Winnetka, Philip James, um, oh, who was not in a hurry to get home from work, has added, 
that I've always found it difficult to schedule my time. Good, keep working on it. Keep working on it. And remember to schedule time that isn't scheduled. Time to be spontaneous. Right? Time to just sit and observe. I call it standing receptive. To be open and receptive. Everybody focuses on doing this and doing that and getting this accomplished and getting my ducks in a row and getting it together and creating order in my life and what about receiving? <laughs> what about just sitting? What about soaking it up? You know, I hate to be corny, but what the heck? I'll be corny to stop and smell the roses, to to pause and scratch the dog behind the ears, and pet the cat. Find out what are the dogs and cats that are just laying around all day? What do they know <laughs> that we don't about simply sitting? And watching yourself, being a witness of your own process. Watching your thoughts instead of always thinking. Experiencing your feelings instead of being victimized by them only. In Tucson, Robert says, Aloha, Michael. Last week really helped me identify the fear and paranoia from the real danger when you learn to use your intuition instead of your instinct, excellent class as always. Have a magical week. Thank you, Robert. Very big difference between intuition and instinct. Talked about it last week. We will again in the future. Intuition is a human quality, a high brain quality. Instinct is an animal quality, an experienced uh, in, in a whole different place in the body. Instinct is like first or second chakra, and intuition is the third, tending toward the fourth, the solar plexus tending toward the heart, actually. In England, uh, Jacob Martin is with us again this week. Hello, Jacob. He says, Aloha, Michael. I have a question regarding something of which I'm not sure is fear-based. Do you think that pointing out some of these stormtrooper types riot police, tear-gassing innocent students at the G20 event in Pittsburgh this weekend, and how it seems like the start of some new world order type of thing, is that related to fear? He says, I don't think it's a clear and present danger or imaginary looking at things similar in history. Do you think it's maybe a fear of history repeating itself? I'm not sure if it's good to try and assume things, seeing what's happening in the past, or whether it's better to just be positive and live in the now. Thanks for the class. Well, living in the now, Jacob, great question, and thank you for that, especially from England. I appreciate you staying up late. Um, to be in the now doesn't mean you ignore the past or the future. It just means you realize that whatever you have to learn from the past or plan in the future is done in the here and now. All right, that that the past is just a memory, and one of the curious things about it that I just learned a few years ago from Gore Vidal, when my wife Doreen interviewed him on KPFK, was that every time you remember, 
You're not remembering the original event or incident or circumstance. You're remembering only the last time you remembered it. And so if you remember something again and again and again, it morphs. It changes. There's a whole whole psychology to what we remember and why we remember the things that we remember. And then you do have to account for the fact that your memory is changing anyway. So, again, the only thing that's real is now. Memory is a function of your imagination. You're making it up, right? And the future, the same thing, is a function of your imagination. The experience of now starts with awareness, but it includes sense and sensation experienced through awareness if and when we're present and focused in the now. But it also suggests you notice how fear-free now usually is. The vast majority of the fear, the stress, the worry, the apprehension, the anxiety that affects us is in the past or the future. What was or what will be? And you say, well, how are you right now? Oh, I'm fine right now. I'm just worried about... (laughs) And you skip into the future. Or I just can't stop thinking about and you visit the past. Come into the only thing that's real, the present moment, you'll find very little fear there. Okay. And again, what you do find is generally a function of not understanding yourself. It's not the world around you that needs to be tamed and conquered and domesticated. It's the self. Well, as far as me commenting on the way the police are behaving in Pittsburgh, that's what cops do. Um, you do have a certain element among the G20 protesters that are there to get the cops upset. They like to do that. Uh, there are also likely provocateurs, that is, police dress people up like protesters and put them in the crowd to create the pretense. The agent provocateur, it's an old scam. Remember in the 60s, the anti-Vietnam War era, um, anytime somebody showed up and started talking about revolution and getting guns and killing your parents, you knew they were the cops. And I've had meetings infiltrated in Los Angeles by the police. They came to my meeting of individuals making a difference in Glendale about 10 years ago and tried to recruit people to come to a rally that I knew there was no permit. I said, do you have a permit for this rally? They said, no. I said, and yet you have a history of confronting the cops. And they said, no, that's not us. The cops are attacking us with horses. And I said, but you don't have a permit. And you never stay in the parade route. And plus, your organization never works with other left groups. And I think you're the cops. Funny thing was, they didn't get angry. That's how I knew they were the cops, because they didn't get angry. They denied it, but they didn't get angry. Uh, Half an hour later, somebody in my group that went out to have a cigarette said they were out there writing down their license plate numbers. 
So that's what they do. They do infiltrate. They do create a pretense for their own behavior. And they've always done that. That's the nature of police as a paramilitary unit. That's what they're going to do. I don't see it myself as specific to this event in Pittsburgh. You know, it's really a kind of a uh, statement by students and other conscious young people who want a more just world. They want the world to be more fair and more just. And many of them are there protesting in good faith. And many of them are, uh, I won't say that, a few of them are there for their own uh, purposes and just to have fun. And like, like I said, some of them are cops drawing a paycheck and pretending that they're students. But, um, you know, I would just point out that it's what you don't know that frightens you. Same as I said to Donna in Albuquerque about the women in the parking lot of the grocery store. It's what you don't know that frightens you. It's what I don't know that frightens me. It's not the danger. It's not the LRAD sonic cannon or the tear gas or the bean bags or the rubber bullets, you know, uh, so much as it's just what you don't know about the event. I've heard people saying recently, well, what's wrong with G20? They're so out of touch. <laughs> they have no idea that uh, this small group of nations is responsible for global policy that keeps the third world in extreme poverty. So the World Bank has money for other bankers but uh, not to help the third world, right? They're there basically to preserve the status quo, and that's what the people are protesting, the preservation of the status quo. All right, let me take a couple more. Thanks for your responses. Let me uh, check. I still don't have anybody on the telephone with the hand raised. Oh, wait a minute. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Let me take a call here. I think this is, I called her Donna. This is Diane. This is Diane in Albuquerque. Let me see if I can bring her on. Hello, Diane. You're on the wisdom class with Michael. Are you there? No? 